just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And hello again, podcast listener. Welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 17th. Patrick Davitt here. We have an amazing way to kick off the 2023 calendar year of Baseball HQ Radio. It's a full-on interview with Ray Murphy, the code general manager and columnist at the Baseball HQ site. And before we get to a very interesting and informative 80-minute conversation, have some housekeeping notes. It might seem odd, but we'll be taking a break next week and resuming our Baseball HQ Radio podcasts on Friday, March the 3rd. After that, we'll have two pods per week through opening day, an expert interview every Tuesday, and a news and notes show every Friday. Then we'll go once weekly the rest of the season with combination shows. And of course, we'll have our special HQ Roundtable editions added to our pitch mix at the All-Star break and at the end of the season. But for right now, it's time for our special feature interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's not our first show of the 2023 season because that's what we called the round tables at the end of last season because they were so forward-looking. But welcome to the first show of the 2023 calendar year, I guess it's safe to say. Yeah, say 2023 show actually produced in 2023, right? What will we think of next? Uh, let's start off with, uh, spring trainings just opened, uh, pitchers and catchers reported earlier this week. Uh, what situations during spring training are at the top of your mind as you watch the transactions and especially as you watch spring training games? You know, it's always a bit of a, you know, hard re-entry when camps open, right? You know, every, in, in this particular first week with no games are even happening, but you start getting drips and drabs of news of, uh, people who had unexpected surgeries or are behind in those sorts of things, those tend to get a lot of ink in this sort of interlude before games start playing. And I generally try not to overreact to that stuff. You know, the ones that are significant manifest themselves fairly quickly. Um, but a couple other things that are on my mind sort of at a more macro level this spring, obviously everybody's talking about the new rules. And I think we're going to start to learn some things about those as games start. Uh, it's it, it, It'll be interesting to me after a winter of hypothesizing and theorizing about what, what's going to happen to actually start to see the implementation. Uh, for instance, I caught a note this week that uh, Kenley Jansen, you know, the newly signed Red Sox closer, is actually skipping the earlier rounds of the WBC because he needs to stay in camp to work on the pitch clock and his adaption to it, because he's one of the great offenders of not being uh, compliant with the pitch clock. And I, I took that as good news because, you know, along the theme of 
uh, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem, right? So at least he's aware he's got some work to do and is carving out some time for it. Uh, but some stuff like that catches my eye this spring. And, you know, then, you know, I'm going to try to avoid getting blown in 37 different directions by the news of the day and down rabbit holes. But, you know, after the quiet last couple of weeks of February, last couple of weeks here, it is nice to get actual news to talk about. My first question is, Kenley Jansen was on the USA WBC team? No, uh, oh, yeah. Netherlands? Oh, I see. Okay. I was going to say, uh, I would have been surprised had Kenley Jansen been able to beat out all the uh, other contenders for the closer role on that particular team. There, there was a lot less competition for closer role on the Netherlands team, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, had it been a speed skating world championship, it would have been a different story. But yeah, the... Uh, the WBC is something else I guess we could uh, start thinking about because it's going to have a little bit of impact, I think, on how we think of players going into the season. And I suspect it might be overstated because somebody's going to have a three home run game or it's going to hit, you know, 420 for the, for the entire event. Maybe a, uh, his team will win and everybody will say, oh, I'm going to jump on him and he'll shoot up by two rounds. And it's going to be like the Tuffy Road situation back in the days of yore. Was it him that had the three home runs in the first yep. game or something like that? And right, three opening day home runs. Never, <laughs> never heard from again. That's right. Last seen driving the number seventeen bus. Uh, so let's talk about this year's drafting. This is a bit something uh, more concrete because you have been drafting a lot. How many leagues do you think you've done so far? I've probably done. I'm in the middle of one right now with Brent. Uh, I've probably done a total of seven or eight drafts at this point. And I'm guessing that's across formats. Yeah, I did a couple of those new NFBC Gladiator leagues that are, you know, not even draft and hold. They're draft and forget with like no bench, just twenty three rounds. And then a couple of actual fifty round draft and holds, and uh, uh, you know, one of my score sheet drafts is just starting this week. So you know, a smattering of different formats. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't realize that you still played score sheet. It's a really interesting format. I love score sheet. I've been playing it since college, which. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> which is getting to be a long time ago. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Your kids are getting towards college age. Are they not? They are. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's when, you know, uh, I remember going back to a, a class reunion in my university and we went to the journalism school, which had relocated and had a big upgrade in equipment and stuff like that. And one of the girls who was a student there was the daughter of one of my classmates and we all looked at each other and thought, oh, we are getting a lot older than we thought. Uh, so as you've looked at this year's drafts so far, not just in your own, but of course you read about them and, and hear about them on podcasts and stuff, what trends or differences from last year have you seen in your drafts so far this year? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if it's getting the 2020 um, screwiness out of the data set a little bit or washing that from our memories, but... The, the overall trends this year, I guess, seem a little saner. Uh, you know, at, up at the top of the draft, we're seeing starting pitching a little bit devalued from where it's been in past years, where, like, your your ace starting pitcher run is more of a, you know, late second and third round event rather than a, you know, late first and early second round event. Um, the closers are tough to navigate, as always. That's a multi-year theme, and it seems like it's, tougher than ever this year but the speed is also a little saner too i don't know if it's anticipation of the bigger bases or what have you but there's still an early premium on 
building a stolen base foundation, but I think it's a little easier to sort of chase speed throughout the draft wherever you feel like you need to. So overall, I think it's, um, you know, maybe there's a little less groupthink going on and there's a little bit more flexibility to sort of carve your own path through uh, through the draft, prioritizing what you want to without having to follow the herd in so many cases. Talking about the the speed issue, I've heard, I listen to a lot of podcasts about fantasy baseball, of course, I read a lot, and it seems like there's a real divergence of opinion about how the bigger bases are going to affect the running game. A lot of people seem to think it's your 10 to 12 stolen base guys in past who are going to jump up to 1820, and a lot of guys who think, no, 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 they're going to be roughly the same because they're still not going to get the green light, but it's guys who are the 40, 50 guys who might jump up to 65, 70. Which side of the fence do you land on in that debate, or is it possible that they're both true? Yeah, I think it's possible they're both true or that it's not uh, as simple to identify a population that is the beneficiaries. You know, in the baseball forecaster, Ron Chandler sort of took the tack of looking at those guys who are just below or around that 75% threshold for stolen base success, suggesting that, you know, the, the couple of inches they're saving um, in the base stealing attempt might be enough to push them to the good side of the, you know, success, success, the risk reward calculation and give them more of a green light. That's, you know, that's a, that's a theory. There are, there are a lot of theories. Um, I I'm listening to, that, that's another case where I getting back to spring training, I'm sort of listening to the early noise. Um, Alex Cora seems to think it's not a huge factor in who gets to run and not, but uh, you know, Alex Cora was as a player was never a burner either. So maybe we actually have to see how these guys, how some of these guys who could actually steal bases actually fare. So, you know, will we see more running in the spring games? And if we do, is it experimental or is it reflective of a green light that's going to carry over into the season? I don't know yet, um, but you know that's kept one of the things I'm going to be trying to discern over the the month of March. Yeah, when I was thinking about it, I thought maybe the dividing line is going to be success rate, because if you if you think about it, a a guy who steals bases successfully, whether it's twelve for fifteen or forty for forty three, a guy with a good success rate is definitely helping his team in that run matrix. You know, going from a guy on first to a guy on second with no change in the number of outs improves your chances of scoring in that inning, and it improves the likelihood of scoring multiple runs. And I wonder if the manager is going to think, I'm going to send the guys who succeed the most, the most, and the guys who are, you know, those 65 to 70% guys or even 70, 71% guys who are just on the borderline, I'll check it out, but I'm not as interested because I think that the possibility is there that by judiciously applying this according to success rate, I'm going to improve the team's chances of scoring runs and scoring more runs in any given situation. I think that's exactly right. And the other thing, you make the point about being judicious about it, and judicious isn't just about uh, the player's success rate stealing. Obviously, there are also limitations to game situations and that sort of thing. And because of that, I think that's why I'm maybe a little less optimistic about it being the, the, the burners who are going to benefit already the, you know, the four, you know, the 40, 50 stolen base guys, because their stolen base attempt percentage is already pretty high. They don't have a lot of room to grow there. You know, they're limited by 
how many times they get on first and it's not an eight run game and there's not a guy on second in front of them, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they just naturally don't have as enough. Uh, they don't have a ton of headroom in the, uh, you know, how much more can you run kind of scenario. So I think it is going to be pockets somewhat lower down the player pool of, in terms of SB rankings where we start to see some pop. I'm going to make a prediction here that whatever we predict for this season about stolen bases is going to turn out to be partially right and partially wrong. And really next year is when we're going to really be able to apply the learnings of this year and have a much better handle on how this rule change has actually affected the gameplay in a real sense, rather than in a speculative or informed opinion sort of way. And the other possibility is it might take more than one year. You know, Ron talked about this in that forecaster intro I mentioned earlier, and I think we even talked about it in one of the, uh, in that 2023 preview show you were talking, referencing earlier. But, you know, the other aspect of this is the, the way that the multiple rule changes interact together and how does the stolen base rate affected not just by the bigger bases and the pickoff rules, but by the shift rules. And now that, you know, we're going to see decisions like, you know, getting back to like the old days before the shift was as big a deal as it is now, you know, if you have a speedy guy on first base and a left-handed batter up, is it better to not send the runner to steal and force the first baseman to hold him on? and have the, the second baseman now alone in his traditional position because the first baseman's anchored to the bag and the shortstop can't cross the imaginary line behind second base to come over and, and shift. Is that, you know, it, 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 you know these things are going to interplay off of each other and, you know, you can theorize and model this as much as you want, but I feel like you can never capture the, you know, <laughs> what I think I called the... Um, you know, the jambalaya of of this stuff all getting thrown into one pot at the same time. What you said just raised a question in my mind, and that is, if the shortstop believes that, say there's a left-handed hitter up, and the shortstop believes that the runner at first is attempting to steal, can he start coming towards second base and maybe even cross it in anticipation of catching the ball and trying to make a tag? And then if the guy doesn't attempt to steal is he in violation of the rule for having crossed the line even though he crossed it with legitimate intent to try to make a defensive play on the runner rather than on the batter yeah i I would have to go back and read the rule again i think it's got to do with you know when is the shift you know the shift rule actually is enforced is it when the pitcher lets go of the ball because then sure he could be charging over and that's one of the things I'm curious to see like the whether the Rays or somebody are going to unveil next week in games. Are we going to see like the NFL equivalent of the wide receiver in motion before the pitch, the shortstop, you know, starting on one side of his shortstop, but, you know, charging toward the other side of the field as soon as the pitcher lets go of the ball because he's allowed to do that? Or what, if it's not whether the pitcher lets go of the ball, if it's when the, uh, you know, whatever the threshold is for when they, uh, when they decide they have to be anchored at the, uh, on the one side of the base. I mean, it's just, you know, we're going to see some crazy stuff in the spring. I'm pretty sure. When I was a kid, I played a lot of fast pitch softball. And the rule in that is you can't, as the runner, you can't leave first base on a steal attempt or just to get a lead off until the ball is out of the pitcher's hand. And it's a source of endless argument. You know, sometimes unless it's blatant, the, the official really has his hands full trying to figure out when exactly did that ball leave the pitcher's hand and when exactly did that guy's foot leave the bag. And then you start getting into a lot of a situation where you have an awful lot of grumbling and complaining and, and managers yelling and and God help us replays to determine whether the fellow 
fellow left or a little earlier, a little late, it's, it's really going to be uh, difficult. And they're going to have some growing pains just figuring out how are they going to implement this rule and how is it going to affect gameplay and how is gameplay going to affect the rule in turn. I think it's, it's pretty interesting. Listen, Ray, you mentioned um, Kenley Jansen, one of the slower pitchers, trying to figure out how he's going to adapt to the uh, 22nd pitch clock rule. And I wonder... How has that affected how you think about other notoriously slow workers? And the name that jumps into my mind is Shoy Otani, the human rain delay on the mound out there. I, I believe he's the slowest starting pitcher to the plate in all of baseball. And it's not like he's 20.8 seconds and everybody else is, you know, a little bit uh, faster than that. He's like 27 seconds. So they're asking him to basically reduce his time between pitches by a quarter which seems like a really big change and it might be enough to A, upset his rhythm, timing and balance and B, increase the likelihood that he gets hurt because something that they're doing out there in in resting between pitches is resting between pitches. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we're going to, you know, I, I don't want to keep saying we're going to see how that plays out, but like there were comments from the Angels about him this week and about how they're going to align their rotation. And you'll remember that they've been using a six-man rotation in the last few years to mostly try and manage Otani's workload. And the comment that I saw this week from, uh, it's Phil Nevin, right? From Phil Nevin said that they're still going to carry six starters, but they're going to try to use the sixth guy on an irregular schedule and try to find opportunities to keep some of the other pitchers led by Otani on a regular five-day rotation or have them not take the extra day when there's an off day in the schedule. They don't have to use the sixth starter, essentially. So tying that to your question here, which is very reasonable, it doesn't seem like the Angels are worried about Otani being able to carry that workload because Otani already, in being a two-way player, carries the biggest workload in the game, and the Angels are kind of sound like they're in a mode of just wanting to pile more on them. So... <laughs> I guess they're not worried about it, much like the Red Sox didn't really seem worried about Jansen when they gave him, you know, $35 million for two years. They obviously think he can figure this out because that's a fairly large bet to place on a guy, uh, you know, who has to adapt to a rule change. So, you know, I, I guess my default stance is the teams don't appear to be worried. So maybe I won't be either, but that doesn't mean that the first time, you know, Jansen gets called for two balls and then gives up a home run on the third pitch I'm in, in mid-March, I'm not going to panic. <laughs> Let's move on to draft strategy. You've had eight drafts or so you said so far this season, and it's something we always talk about in this time of year, but how early in the draft do you start making your selections with positions in mind rather than just talent? Not very early, you know, between these draft and hold formats, um, you know, you know, with the 50 rounds, no fab, I get interested in positional balance by the midterm of the draft and trying to find some multi-position guys who are really valuable in that format. But in the top five, eight rounds, you know, I'm not, I'm generally not one who's going to double up on a position. I'm not going to get two first basemen early or something like that. But beyond that, you know, as long as I'm sort of starting to put pieces on a chessboard in terms of covering positions, I don't much care where I start to finish. And another aspect of, drafting by your slot and figuring out what your roster looks like is category balance. When do you start thinking about that? Much earlier, at least in terms of not creating a hole, 
uh, you know, so that means finding some anchor for stolen bases fairly early on in the draft and also not digging a batting average hole. Um, I think those are the two things I want to make sure I accomplish with my first five, six hitters on a roster. I want to make sure I've got, you know, some basis of stolen bases that I can keep adding to and not start from a deficit there. And same thing, um, you know, I want to retain some flexibility late to, you know, trash my batting average or at least make sure that I'm not going to dig a hole when I add my second catcher late, et cetera, and start, start with enough of a cushion to, uh, to allow myself that flexibility later on. I've heard a fair number of experts saying that we should draft for best available talent in the first few rounds and with a sort of basic idea of do you want two hitters, starter, reliever? Do you want four hitters? You got you need to understand that while keeping an, an open mind about taking guys who have fallen unexpectedly into a favorable draft position. But after after you get your first foundation guys four or five, then you really start looking at other considerations like category balance, like... Um, position uh, requirements, those kinds of things. Does that sound like a, a, a model? Yeah, I think that's a, a model. The, uh, you, you can, you can call that a lot of different things or, you know, people describe it differently, but I think everyone's, you know, multiple people have the same concept. Like I'm mindful of uh, Jenny Butler, who we know from first pitch Arizona is an excellent NFBC player and contrib- contributes to, uh, you know, what one of the uh, other websites out there has a, like a matrix shit that she develops that she uses for her early rounds of the draft that tracks both those category and positional considerations. Um, Phil Dussault, who won the NFBC and, uh, 2021 calls, you know, talks about keeping all of his options open and, you know, trying to, um, you know, his goal in the early rounds of a draft is to basically not paint himself into any corner and be able to adapt to virtually any direction that presents itself in the mid game. I think that's another kind of another way of saying the same thing, right. Is, you know, if you, you know, it, it could be anything, if you, don't get enough speed early on and you're forced to chase that later on. That's going to preclude you if, uh, you know, power options show up later in the draft and you have to ignore them because you have to make sure that you get a guy who's more rounded or at least gives you a few steals. Or if you fill your utility spot earlier, that might you know, restrict your flexibility. Or if you draft both a first baseman and then another first baseman as your corner infielder in the first eight rounds, same thing. Uh, so, you know, f- I, I think that's, you know, th- th- those are two or three different ways of explaining kind of the same concept that I'm going for in my early draft, which is to, you know, build some, acquire some foundational pieces and sort of keep my flexibility to get to the entire draft board um, as broad as possible in the middle and end game. Yeah, I think one way or the other, we try to figure out new ways to describe that process, but that's kind of what we're all doing. I know back in the day when these kinds of things weren't as discussed and weren't as uh, sort of widely realized, I think some guys might have tried more extreme strategies. Well, we know some guys tried really extreme strategies. The Labadini thing way back when, what, what, a dollar a piece for nine pitchers and everything else for hitting, those kinds of gimmicky sort of things have been tried and I think mostly have failed. You, the first time you do it, it works, The but every other time right. it doesn't work. So I think that, I think you're right that what we're all trying to do basically is 
build a construct a roster in the early going that opens up as many paths forward as you possibly can so that you can take full advantage of whatever player happens to drop to you at a place where you think, well, this is a, a raging bargain. And you'd sure hate to not be able to take advantage of the raging bargain because you would already overload it in whatever the raging bargain's value was. So I think you're right. I think we're just saying the same thing in a bunch of different ways. But the the I think the key warning is unless you're very confident in what you're doing, that extreme type of strategies probably are, are not the best idea. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, first show of the 2023 calendar year with Ray Murphy co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com, writes a lot at the site. And Ray, one of the topics being discussed in fantasy circles so far this year is a, a bit of a shift in position scarcity, or perhaps it's more accurate to say a shift in how the hitters' positions are tiered and the different value gaps between those tiers. So usually we think it's catchers and other positions are, are really full. But third base this year, which is usually a fairly um, easy position to fill, has four guys in the top two rounds, uh, Ramirez, Machado, Devers, and Witt, three more in the next couple of rounds, Riley, Arenado, and Bregman. And then the next batch is way down in the 10th round, Alex Bohm, Max Mincy, Gunnar Henderson, guys like that. And there's a similar phenomenon at second base, but the tiers are differently shaped. What is your assessment of position tier scarcity as a concept and as an issue in drafts this year? Yeah, I think it's a much better way to talk about it. Um, I think it was, I wanted to give credit for this and I didn't get a chance to look it up, but I'm pretty sure it was a tweet from Steve Weimer, who uh, is a another um, really good dominant, player, yeah. dom- dominant force in the NFBC, especially the draft champions format. He's also been doing some uh, some writing for HQ this year. So I've been consuming everything he, he writes and uh, he talks, he had a tweet that, basically broke down that aggregate in the player pool when I forget if he did it in, you know, 23 rounds or 30 rounds or positively valued players or what his universe was for defining this. But basically that, you know, in terms of player projections, position scarcity does not exist globally other than a catcher. Like the, the differences in the overall value of the player pool at third base versus shortstop versus second base are, are, are minuscule, not enough to affect your draft strategy. However, I think overall, the what you, the question you were just posing is reflective that we've come finally come up with some better language to talk about position scarcity. It's not the point that Steve was making is it's not the difference in overall value in the player pool, but it's the distribution within, right? And there are going to be pockets and there are going to be clusters at each position of similarly valued players. And then there are going to be dead spots where you can go five, seven rounds in a draft or a seven to $10 range in uh, dollar values without a player at that position falling into that shelf. And you've got to be aware of where those are because they're going to affect your roster building. You don't want to get to a position where... You know, you've teed yourself up that, okay, the last infielder I need is a third baseman. Oh, by the way, there happen to be no third baseman that I like in the next six rounds. You know, that's, you, you painted, that's the opposite of the flexibility we were talking about earlier where you painted yourself into a corner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And conversely, it seems like if you've decided you look at the guys at the top of the table and assuming you don't get an early enough draft pick to land uh, Ramirez, then you're looking at Machado, Devers, and Witt, and you might think all of these guys are going to go 
earlier than I'm comfortable drafting them for whatever reasons. And we all have our reasons. So you might look ahead and you say, well, now I know that the next batch down, Riley, Arenado, Bregman, I like those guys in that area. I'll wait and I'll use my earlier picks on other positions because I know I'm going to have a chance to come back on this uh, later batch. And of course, it would behoove you to act quickly when you get near that round, maybe even promote one of those guys up a little bit because you don't want to be hanging around and have all three of them go right in front of you. And now you're down into the, the next cluster down, which is... I don't even know who it is, Matt Chapman and guys like that, um, which is not bad, but it may not be what you want. So you, it's a it's an interesting strategic thing to or tactical thing I think to think about. How are you going to apply the knowledge that these guys are going in these clusters in in the rounds? And if you don't want to pay the price, then how are you going to manage the acquisition of guys in the next tier? Or what tier do you want them in? And how are you going to approach getting somebody in the tier you want to get somebody from without getting sniped? Yeah, it's really, you know, this is the corollary to what we were talking about, about having, you know, build, building an early round strategy that maintains as many options as you can, is you have to then know sort of once you accomplish that goal and, you know, it's the chess early game versus the mid game, right? But once you come out of the sort of early stages and put yourself in that position, if you've accomplished your goals and you have, you know, a, a nearly infinite number of paths available to you from there, you kind of want to know what to do with that information when you get there, right? I mean, because in some ways, you know, you you kind of hit on the opposite approach two or three minutes ago. In some ways, it's much easier to execute a draft plan if you come in and you sort of say, damn what the rest of the room is going to do. In the first five rounds, I'm going to get three starting pitchers and two outfielders, and then I'm going to come back in round seven through 12, and, you know, I'm going to fill my infield then. And, you know, stick to a script like that. I mean, that's a much, you know, you can script as much as you want in advance and it, you know, really limits the decision you may have decision making. You have to make at the draft table, which in some sense will, is, you know, you have to do less thinking along the way and you'll get to your end point and have, you know, executed your script. It may not lead to a better outcome because you were sort of oblivious to, you know, the, the, uh, the multitude of other paths that, presented themselves to you by the way the, the the draft flowed so it's a more you know it's a more advanced you, you know room aware strategy to try to maintain your flexibility and pivot as you go um but you know by definition it's harder to execute you have to you know be prepared to know where all those clusters are and you know if uh, you know in some sense you run the risk of you know you're sort of taking what the draft gives you but the risk of that is you're sort of if you're not exerting your influence on that you're just sort of getting pushed around by and being left with the stuff that nobody else wants right which is uh probably not a winning strategy no it probably isn't and i remember a number of years ago ron i think or it might have been uh, lenny melnick and his partner who came up with this idea of a draft plan which is figure out what guys you want and draft them and yeah. and not pay too much attention to what you know the magazines say is their value or or all these kind of external considerations. Now, of course, we have ADPs all over the place, and I think that's interesting. At the same time, though, it it seems if you're going to look past the obvious guys early and say I'm going to set my sights, say you're in the first base and you think, well, I'm not going to get a Goldschmidt because I want to get a closer in that round or whatever, or I want to take a starter, and I'm probably not going to get any of the other really top first baseman, Guerrero's going to go in the first and I know I'm too late or too early or whatever. 
So you look ahead and you say, well, look at the eighth, ninth round guys by value ADP and by regular ADP. Reese Hoskins, Ryan Mountcastle, CJ Crone, Josh Bell, Anthony Rizzo, and Vinny Pasquantino. And you think that's a pretty good batch to choose from. You know, it's not like any of them is Vlad Guerrero or, or Paul Goldschmidt, certainly, but they're pretty serviceable guys and they have in some cases some pretty good ceiling and you might think that and but then it seems to me you have to start figuring out well how am i going to get the, my choice say your choice is anthony rizzo does that mean you bump him up to the sixth round just to be on the safe side yeah it might i mean you can't you can't do you, you've got to pick your spots for where that's the you know that that's the move you want to make and you know, sort of decide that this is your guy. I mean, you can, you probably have, you know, in a, in a straight draft scenario, I think you can get away with doing that a couple of times throughout your draft. But if you're spending 23 rounds, jumping up guys by two or two or three rounds, because they're guys you really want, you better be really right about a lot of them because you're, you know, you're sort of overpaying for your entire roster. Uh, But, you know, picking out your spots and saying like Rizzo is the guy I really want. And I'm going to build my whole draft plan around, getting him in and I'm willing to move him up to round six to get him. And I'm not only am I willing to move him up to round six, but as you say, in round two, I'm going to take a starting pitcher or Raphael Devers instead of Paul Goldschmidt, because, you know, Rizzo was the first baseman I want five rounds later. So I'm going to, you know, pass on other spots where a first baseman gets presented to me. You can do that. But again, all of these decisions layer on each other and you probably can't sit there you know, in Letty Meldick style and say, like, I'm coming home with these 20 guys in three hours because um, that's probably not realistic. And if it is, it means you're probably, you know, or you're, you're probably not getting enough um, talent relative to the value of each draft pick. Or at least you're not getting enough projected value out of right. the out of the draft slot because really we don't know. There's such wide error bars. I'll talk about that a little more in a second. The other thing I, I came into my mind is when Lenny and Irwin, his name was right, the, his partner. Irwin's uh, willing, yes. Er, Irwin's yes. willing. Uh, when they came up with that plan, it wasn't a straight draft plan. It was an auction plan. Right. So you have a lot more control about when you get guys and what guys you can uh, you can really hammer on, as opposed to just sitting there powerless while a guy goes in a place that you didn't expect him to go. We'll talk more about ADPs in a second. Uh, just out of curiosity, Ray, out of Hoskins, Mountcastle, Crone, Bell, Rizzo, and Pasquantino, who would you take if this was your tier to grab a either a first baseman or a middle guy, a corner guy? I think my guy here is Hoskins. You're right. This is a good group. There are a bunch of guys I'm interested in. Uh, Pasquantino has a lot going for him. You know, he seems to be a bit of a darling this spring and with good reason, you know, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting skill set. He also popped in a piece of piece of work. I wrote last week about beneficiaries of the shift rules. Uh, He picked up a bunch of, um, a a bunch of value in that. I guess my concern with Pasquatino is still the, lineup and ballpark context there and that you know not a great place to hit not a great lineup around him although there is some some young talent there it's not the royal the uh three runs a game royals of say three years ago but um i i, I like the lineup context for hoskins a lot better and uh you know he now w- when he's healthy his power plays really well and seemingly for the first time in a couple of years he's coming into this year totally healthy and uh, i could see a big year there rizzo is quite a beneficiary of the shift change rules right uh, yes, for sure. Although he, uh, 
less of a ground ball guy, but yes, he's been, uh, you know, he's a heavy pull hitter who also does that de- does definitely get a bump there. Along the same lines in the 18th and 19th round, you could pick your fifth, maybe your fourth or fifth outfielder among guys like Max Kepler, Jorge Soler, Mike Ostremski, Mark Canna, Dylan Carlson, Michael Brantley, Kike Hernandez, AJ Pollock. All those guys are in a fairly narrow band along there. And when you look at that, I mean, of course we need more outfielders than we need infielders or uh, all the other positions, but it seems like when you glance at that kind of thing and when you really group all the positions into tiers like that and look at them, I put them in little boxes and I put the boxes one on top and I just look for the box that's really full of guys. And I think, oh, there must be a guy there that I like for that place in the draft. And I think that kind of analysis gives you, gives a creates a path for you to think about the strategy that you want to employ and give might help give you the discipline not to take an outfielder in the 12th round or the 14th round when you actually, just because you like him, because you know you have a target later on to fill that spot uh, and uh, give you the discipline to take a guy you need rather than a guy you're just in love with. Yeah, and the thing about the, those outfielders in particular, because you know, outfield has scarcity as much as any other position does, but you just because of the raw numbers, you get a more varied set of skill profiles around. The thing I like about that group of outfielders that you were talking about is the different skills they provide, the different ways they can help your roster, depending on what you need when you get there. Brantley, of course, is a batting average salve if you need one down there. I've been getting a lot of uh, Kike Hernandez most in the last month or so since the Trevor Story injury, because it's turned, you know, it's become obvious that he starts the year with outfield eligibility, but is going to pick up second base or or shortstop, maybe both as well. And in those draft and hold leagues, I was talking about those multi-position guys are super helpful. So, and, and I'm also watching in March to see if he's also going to be the uh, return to his role as the leadoff hitter with the Red Sox, which would be good for his uh, contextual stats. But then, you know, Yastrzemski is someone that we were pretty w- bullish on in the baseball forecaster. They've gone out, the Giants have, and sort of bought a whole new outfield around him. And given um, the research that we had in the forecaster and then had on the site this week about how the Giants use their use their bench and limit their playing time, which spread their, not limited, but spread it out among everybody. You know, I've got concerns now about whether Yastrzemski is a, say a 55, 60% playing time outfielder, or if it's more like 70, 75, and that affects a lot of his value. So that's something we'll watch in March. But my point is these guys, you know, it's a nice cluster of guys that depending on what risk you're willing to absorb and what you're trying to address on your roster, this is a case where in the right situation, I would probably consider any of these six guys. That's the beauty of it, right? That any of them is worth consideration without you being uh, enamored of any of them in particular. This is the point of the draft, I think maybe even earlier, where players truly do start becoming really fungible one to the next and you're just making making your choices, as you said, based on, well, you know, this guy's going to get a few more bags than home runs and I got enough home runs, so I'll take him or whatever. I need, um, my league has a DL category, so Michael Brantley jumps up in in my estimation. There you go. (laughs) Before we leave this topic, uh, Ray, closers seem to fit the tiers model 
almost as tightly as any other position. You mentioned top closers going earlier than ever. We talked about them going ahead of top starters in leagues this year. How in have you been on the idea of Edwin Diaz or one of those top closers in the second round, which we've seen? I'm pretty warm to it, actually. I've, you know, uh, we had a, uh, Ron also had some data in his opus at the beginning of the baseball forecaster this year about the failure rate of closers. And those early picks were, um, you know, the, the overall return rate on closers sort of throughout the draft um, where it was, was abysmal. Um, but given how many roles end up unsettled in the last couple of years, I've tried to pick out my favorite guy in the, in the middle tier, you know, which has led me to a lot of Corey Kniebel and stuff like that, that um, hasn't worked out. So I've been, I've gotten the other direction and I've been targeting one of those early guys. I've gotten some Classe, I've gotten some Edwin Diaz, I've gotten some Jordan Romano, but then I've been ignoring that middle tier entirely and then waiting until round 20 or the single dollar days to start supplement with speculative closers or closers and waiting and not, you know, trying to, trying to minimize the expense of that second round pick by not adding a 10th round pick to that. Right. So I've been not, you know, paying for closers in round two and 10, I've been paying for closers in like round two and 18 or two and 20. Um, and of course down at 18 or 20, you have no guarantee you're getting a closer, but you know, in each 50 round draft and holds, there's a lot of weight darts that saves. And, you know, if I find, uh, you know, for instance, around 46 clay homes or something like that this year, then, then it works out beautifully. And if I don't, maybe it doesn't. There are some guys in that next tier down that I think are pretty interesting. I really like Felix Bautista in Baltimore, just based on what he showed us after the trade last year. And there's a couple of other guys in that range. And I don't know where Jordan Romano fits. Is he in that top tier? Is he in that next tier? If he's in the second tier, for sure, he's a target. If he's in the top tier, I think he's a target as apparently you do too. But those are the kind of decisions when you're tiering these players, especially if there's a guy right in the, a lone guy or two guys right in the middle of what is an obvious first clump and an obvious next clump, maybe there's a couple of guys who are halfway in between and do they create a tier of their own? And then it starts getting to be angels on the head of a pin and you start figuring, well, I'm wasting too much time thinking about this one thing and I need to move on. And as do we, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt. With Ray Murphy, co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, earlier you talked about how catchers is the one position that's always tiered and always scarce. And it seems like this year, maybe that's not quite as true as it has been in years past. Because, I mean, obviously we see Real Muto looks like the clear cream of the crop at around $22, which is Custom Draft Guide Baseball HQ's valuation machine. But then we have four catchers in the 13 to 16 range, uh, Varsho in Toronto, Sal Perez, Adley Rutschman, and Wilson Contreras. They're all pretty decent looking guys, you know, as a second tier. And then right behind them, 10 to $12 guys like Will Smith, Tyler Stevenson, Alejandro Kirk. Uh, everybody loves Alejandro Kirk, William Contreras, and Sean Murphy now in Atlanta. And then right after that, MJ Melendez, Danny Jansen, Cal Raleigh, and a whole bunch of guys. How are you managing the relative cornucopia behind the plate this season? Yeah, it is the relative cornucopia, at least, you know, as, as you suggest, after having our standards 
you know, beaten lower and lower and lower every year. We were finally getting a, uh, you know, a sort, of, sort of an oasis here with a uh, with with more options to go around. Um, as you're rattling off those names um, and trying to tie this back to our earlier conversation about uh, things were things I'm watching in March. Um, there, there's a common theme here. Um, I've been targeting, you know, somebody in that top eight or whatever the number is, uh, catcher tier in a, in a lot of my drafts. Um, but to justify that, um, to me, you need some path for these catchers to get more than the regular catcher playing time, which, you know, usually tops out at something like, you know, something lower than 500 plate appearances, right? But the interesting thing is that most of these guys who are going earlier have that in some form. You know, Real Muto plays a lot, DHs when he does, when he doesn't, and I think that'll be even more common with Bryce Harper out for the first half of the year. Um, Sal Perez, of course, is going to get a lot of time at DH because Melendez is there. Uh, so Perez is going to be, you know, in that lineup every day. He's probably a very good bet to get the most plate appearances of anyone who's catcher eligible this year. And Perez has never been any shrinking violet when it comes to plate appearances, even right. as a catcher. Right? I mean, he's 160 exactly. games one year, I think. <laughs> exactly. He's carried that load behind the plate every, you know, before. And he's obviously a little bit older now, but there's certainly every reason to think that if he's catching, I don't know, half time or you know, maybe even less than that, that he could carry an everyday workload. You know, Varsho has arrived in Toronto up there with you, but he's not going to catch maybe at all. So he's catcher eligible, but you know, is going to be playing the outfield every day. You know, Rushman uh, looks like he's going to, you know, he's got the younger legs and can carry a big workload in Baltimore. They added James McCann this year, but I think that just leaves an opportunity for Rushman to do some DH or first base work. Uh, one of the ones I'm watching is Wilson Contreras and you know, he's got a new team in St. Louis. Now um, it seems like there's maybe less of a path for him to get, DH work there, but I'm curious to see if there are any allusions to that in spring training. We might get a read on that. He's also probably going to hit way up in the lineup, like first or second, which will help his uh, plate appearance totals a little bit as well. And, and then there, you know, the other one is Will Smith with the Dodgers, who has been maybe frustratingly managed pretty conservatively by the Dodgers for years now, but the Dodgers, you know, are so have traditionally been you know, so stacked in the lineup and didn't really need to push him. But now with Turner and Bellinger gone and, you know, the, leaning on some of the kids in that lineup, I think maybe they will have to look to Smith a little bit more um, to stay in the lineup. And maybe Smith will get more playing time at DH as the uh, as the summer goes on, especially if the Dodgers are not, you know, 25 games ahead in the NL West by July 15th, as they have been the last few years. So, you know, overall theme with the catchers is I want to try to get a better read on their specific playing time outlooks in the course of March, because I think there are some places where they can break through the usual catcher ceiling. What I like about it, Ray, is that in the past, we've almost always had to look at catchers and say, well, I'm going to hold my nose and take this guy three rounds early because I need a catcher who can pr produce anything. And all of a sudden it's starting to look like we have a uh, a pathway to valuing catchers pretty much just according to their production or their expected production without having to worry so much about the other lesser catchers that are going to fall into our laps if we don't act precipitously. With all of these choices, I wonder if there's going to be a psychological effect on the draft community as they go in saying, 
I don't really need to spend a first or early second round pick on Real Muto because I can see all of these other guys coming up behind and maybe I'll get one of them in the third round and I can uh, have my cake and eat it too, as it were. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. You know, the other thing that gets really weird is I've had this experience a couple of times. It's very, you know, NFBC 15 team draft specific, but if you're in the middle of the draft, uh, in, the, in the middle of the snake, I should say, um, and you get back to your second round pick, and it, it almost doesn't matter who you took in the first round. It can be, you know, Vlad Guerrero or, you know, some Jordan Alvarez or somebody who goes in like, you know, the pick like six through 10 range. You get back to the second round, your second round pick. And if you want, uh, if you want to start with two hitters and you're waiting on pitching a little bit, it gets pretty bleak in terms of the ADP as far as like what hitters are available to you there. Um, so I, in some senses, I've gotten real Muto a couple of times because he sort of ends up being an out or an off ramp from a spot where, you know, it sounds ridiculous to think in the second round of a draft, there's nothing there that you like, but, 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 you know, I've, I've actually been in that spot a couple of times this year and my sort of safety valve has been real Muto because of that. Yeah. And that makes sense because at that point you're in, you're in a position where his value is pretty much justified by his expected production, especially the bags are always welcome to add in. Uh, there's lots of guys in all of these tiers I, I really like. And again, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but I think we have to be really cognizant of the fact that the valuations are pretty wide error bars and locking a guy into the eighth round because my projection engine says he's, you know, $9, really what's $9, a, a sort of a six to $12 range pretty much. And you don't have yep. to be that wedded to the ADPs, I guess. We'll talk more about that in a second. Let's go to starting pitchers. As you mentioned at the start, Ray, they've been dropping in the early going, uh, none in the ADP first round this season, uh, except Otani. And of course we know that's not based on him just for his pitching. So what have you been doing in response to the downward trend and where the starting pitchers start to go and then start really gathering momentum. I think the interesting thing to me, or the thing I like about this starting pitcher pool is that you can put your own stamp on it. Um, you know, it, it's nice that they're getting pushed out of the first and second round and more into the third or later. Um, but I think the thing I like about that more is that there seems to be a lot of difference of opinion about the rankings or at least the way I would rank them or the guys I target doesn't go in lockstep with the ADP the way it does for the catchers or the closers. Right. So it turns out like I, there's a tier I really like that is, um, you know, a little bit further down, um, you know, and that like it could be anything from that round four or five, six range, but somewhere in there, you know, there's a shelf of Max Fried, Kevin Gossman, um, Luis Castillo is another one, Joe Musgrove, um, guys like that who I really like and will pick up as many chances as I can. But by the same token, there are other guys who go in the same range, just off the cuff. Shane McClanahan's one of them that I want nothing to do with, which is great. You know, I, I love the variability. I love the, the, the difference of opinion. It's a chance to actually stake claims on guys you believe in and, not necessarily be competing with all of the other people in your draft table for them because clearly other people feel differently about other pitchers and that's great they should we'll find out who's right but i 
obviously we're playing we're playing these games and making these picks because I like the guys that I like and it excites me when I can you know I'm two picks away and there are two pitchers I like and then the pick before me is a guy you know is another pitcher and it was one it wasn't one of the ones that were on at the top of my board anyway I'm like woohoo that's great let's go it is interesting to see the differences in valuation and how they affect the ADPs. Uh, for instance, I saw, I checked the other day, by, this is NFBC ADPs, the average of Alec Manoa and Zach Gallen is in the fifth round. But by all of the valuation metrics, they're more like eighth round pitchers by value. They should be in that eighth round area. How aggressive do you think a fifth round pick is on either of these guys? Or do you personally, do you think Manoa or Gallen could certainly be worth a fifth round pick? I mean, sure they could. Um, Manoa is not someone I'm targeting. I, you know, the all the traditional metrics, the skills based metrics, say that he was kind of out over his skis last year, and that we we should see some, you know, we're obviously going to see some regression from you know a two and a quarter ERA and a sub one WHIP he put up last year. You know, he was fantastic. Um, you know, we're projecting it was his ERA to go up by more than a run, and you know the expected metrics say it could be even more than that. So, you know, I I, I think you're paying a, a lot for last year in Manoa, which is sort of a sort of a classic trap that I try to avoid. Uh, Gallon, I'm more interested in. He was you know really good for a lot of last year. I think my biggest complaint there is the team context and the bullpen context. We've we've said for years. Don't chase wins, but uh, you know it was. You were at first first with Arizona. It was one of the speakers made a good case for um, chasing for for having to chase wins because there's such a difference in the number of wins that come out between uh, good teams and bad teams. And I'm worried that Gallon is saddled on one of those bad teams. It was Rob Silver, by the way, who did that. Rob made a good case that pitch, you know pitcher wins come from good teams and you can you know really bury yourself if you're looking for wins from the pirates the reds the a's etc and you, all you're doing is taking ratio risk without any possibility of a win i don't know i don't quite know yet whether arizona is that bad but it's a definite thing against gallon another guy that intrigues me in this vein is robbie ray uh, in the NFBC ADPs, he's around pick 100, which puts him pretty solidly in the seventh round. But when you look at the valuations, the custom draft guide at Baseball HQ, but other valuation systems, he's closer to the 200th pick rather than the 100th, just by pure value. And in no draft was he uh, drafted later than the ninth round in the NFBC, which is still seems like about 50 picks too soon. What's your take on Robbie Ray? And are you interested at the ninth round, which is pretty much the lowest you're going to be able to get him? Yeah, I don't think I am. And that, 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 but that's not a case of me being, you know, convinced that that's ridiculous. Um, you know, our values are, our values are a little bit lower than that, but like I said, there's a lot of variation. So, so be it. I, I think my concern is, you know, if you look at the last number of years for Ray, it's a wide range of outcomes, right? You know, obviously that brilliant 2021 in Toronto last year was, you know, we all knew he was going to get worse and it wasn't that bad. He had a pretty good year. He struck out over 200 guys with a, you know, an ERA, uh, I think it was just over three, five or something like that. You know, certainly very reasonable, but I think, you know, there's a, you know, it didn't, the year didn't necessarily end well for him. And there's a track record of inconsistency there that, 
I think I want to know, you know, there, there are other guys I can target in that, you know, even in that ninth round range that we're at where I think I have a better idea of what I'm going to get. I think that's exactly right. And I noticed, uh, what I think is the nicest pocket in the whole draft is in the ninth to 10th rounds, both by ADP and by value. If you just stack rank the values in that little group, you have Framber Valdez, Luis Severino, Dylan Cease, George Kirby, and Tristan McKenzie. I like all five of these guys. And I wonder how would you rank them first of all, and how likely would you be to double dip if you happen to be drafting at the turn with both, with more than one of them available? Yeah, that that is a great tier. I could throw and I could add more names to it to that as well. I really like Kyle Wright and Logan Webb, who are you know sort of in that range too. But from the guys you listed, um, I would rank them Framber and then Cease and then Kirby and then McKenzie and then Severino. I really Severino last just because of um, the lack of certainty that he can carry a workload and whether we know what we're going to get there. Um, but you're right, um, a lot of a lot of skill in there again, you know, talk uh, back to what I was just talking about with gallon, you know, a bunch of good teams there too. A uh, bunch of, you know, and even in McKenzie at K square, you know, they, that we had those kind of workload concerns about McKenzie last year. He, not only did he personally answer those, but I think I get a little more confidence that the guardians are so good at, you know, man- managing and developing their pitching that I, I think they, um, they they can keep keep him rolling, but yeah, it's a great tier, and I could add more names to those five. It's uh, it's and, and yes, um, I have been known to target multiples in this group, but saying like this, you know, this is a deep tier, and I I would like to grab more than one pitcher in this range. Ray, we've been talking quite a bit about ADPs in general. How do you use ADP data? You know, it's. It's a value. It's it, it's it's a rep- representation of the market, right? It's a value. It's a sort of a what the player costs kind of metric for me. Um, it the, how I use it in draft varies both where we are in the draft and where I sit in the snake as well. You know, in some cases, especially if I'm closer to one of the edges, or actually, it's the opposite. If I'm if I'm, if I'm more in the middle, and there's a you know. I, I will use ADP as a judge of if I'm comparing multiple guys, is there a chance one of them is going to get back to me? Especially if you're just off the middle, you're on pick like set, like pick nine or 10 and you have like a short turn and a long turn between your two picks. You know, if you're trying to wait eight or nine or 10 picks rather than 20 for your next pick, then, you know, sometimes you can slip a guy through. Um, and ADP is sort of instructive into, you know, which one is more likely to come back to you. Um, and then, you know, we've got our own valuations, which, you know, now that Rotolab is available, I've got Rotolab open, you know, on my screen, you know, throughout a draft. And, you know, ADP is a good check, too, because obviously there are going to be things in it I just don't agree with or guys I don't like. But when I see ADP bubbling up a different set of names in a position or a different set of um, pitchers right now or what have you, then I'm looking at it. It's a nice check to go and see what is the market seeing that I'm not? And maybe I just disagree with the market, which is great. That's a, you know, potentially a profit opportunity, or maybe it's a chance to, you know, sharpen up my knowledge of the player pool and, you know, add a, you know, add a couple of names that I, you know, hadn't properly considered earlier in the year. So ADP is a, you know, multifaceted tool that way, right? You can use it in a lot of different ways, some for good and some for less good. Yeah. I was looking at ADPs and value rankings the other day 
and I was looking at the dollar value falloffs again using custom draft guide values. And what jumps out is there's quite a fall off from the start of the first to the end of the first. It's about an eight dollar value difference. But in the second round, the drop from first to last pick is two dollars. Same in the third and the fourth. And by the eighth round, it's just a dollar. So it starts to it starts to feel more and more like these rounds are almost abstract in, in the way that they're going. And the other thing I think about Ray is if we think about average draft pick, I don't think it's that helpful. I think what you really need to look at and NFBC provides this information is how early did this guy go? What's the earliest this guy went? Because if you're interested in a player, knowing that he averaged the 12th round isn't much help to you if you know that somewhere somebody thought he was worth the eighth. It certainly has to put you on your guard that you just can't sit there confidently saying, I'll wait till the 11th and I'll get this guy because you could be wrong. In a way, it's almost like average exit velocity versus max EV for hitters, right? We, we pretty much know now that average exit velocity doesn't say that much, but max does. And I, I wonder if looking at it, average draft position might be a bit misleading to us and, and causing us to go astray versus knowing the, uh, at least the earliest pick and maybe the latest as well. If you want to, if you want to gamble on a guy you're not sure of, you know, that the, the latest that he's going to go is that, and the earliest he's going to go is this, and it gives you a bit better of an idea how you might want to manage that particular pick. Yeah, it's exactly right. And, you know, it's a great point that the NFBC, data provides more data than just the average draft pick right and it w- taking that same thought a step further it's a actually a concern for me and one that i need to reiterate to our subscribers in an article at some point that we have the nfbc adp data included in our projections on the website at baseball hq but that data is to your point more dangerous than ever for a couple of reasons. One, the NFBC is running more different formats than ever, and ADP is going to differ by format. You're going to have different, you know, the ADP is going to shift whether you're in a draft and hold format or one of those gladiators that I was talking about earlier where closers were even going in the first round sometimes to your draft and hold events, uh, to to your 12-teamers, your 15-teamers. You know, the eight. Our NFBC ADP feed is, you know, the the merge of all of the NFBC data. It's the it, it's the broadest possible set, so it can get you in trouble. And then the other aspect of it is, besides the different draft formats, you also want to look at um, a more recent date range to get to account for player movement and sort of wash out the effects of drafts in November and December before free agency. You know, there were the NFBC drafts more and more earlier and earlier. So it used to be that the November, December data didn't have a big enough denominator to really skew the ADP all year, but now it kind of does. And it's something you got to worry about. So the, the tools directly at the NFBC website that let you filter by draft type and by date range give you better data to work with than the overall exported, you know, macro top level one number ADP that ADP value that you can get from a player, you know, to your point, a minimum and maximum ADP in the format that I'm drafting in the last three weeks is a much more instructive number than just an ADP from the entire offseason across all formats. 
the caveat being, of course, the more you filter the list, the fewer examples you get to the point where an average may be less meaningful just because there aren't enough, there aren't enough entries in the sample. You know, if you have an average or an average max min of five drafts, do you really know anything at that point? Like the, there's a, it's like a Hobson's choice. You can get lots of drafts and get real, a real big denominator, but the particulars of the kinds of drafts and the dates and so forth are not, are, don't help accuracy. But on the other side, you can get theoretically more accuracy by filtering to the earliest, to the latest dates and the exact type of draft you're in, but you don't get enough of a denominator to trust the results. So you know, you, you can't exactly win, right. right? Yeah. So either way, it just seems to suggest that, you know, ADPs are a tool, but they're not the begin all and end all of draft planning. And you need to be, I think you just need to be using them. And this is how I use them. And maybe I'm uh, giving myself more credit than is due. But I take the valuations that I trust, the dollar valuations, and I stack rank those and I just break them down and I find out what a what draft position each player has if the draft went exactly according to that valuation system. And then I look for real big anomalies between that and the ADPs, especially yeah. the minimums, and say, okay, for some reason, this guy is either being way overdrafted by my by the valuation system that I trust, or he's being way underdrafted, which makes him an opportunity, again, based on the fact that I have this valuation system. But also keeping in mind that I know the valuation systems are inherently relatively inaccurate. They have to be. And we, we've known this for a long time. And so I, I would caution anybody who's using that particular system to round all the dollar values to like maybe the nearest three bucks or something like that. So that, uh, it becomes more obvious where the tiers are, because if you, if your tiers is everybody who's from $20 to $22 at shortstop, there's going to be very few guys, but we know that the 20 to $22 values are actually, should actually encompass everybody from 16 to 25. Maybe that's the tier. Uh, I don't exactly know. And then from within the tier, then you use your acumen, your knowledge of the pool, your, your own insights and so forth to pick the guy out of the tier that I think you need. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. At the risk of tipping off your competitors who might be listening to this show, Ray, any sneaky late round starting pitchers you're looking at? Everybody wants a sleeper. Everybody wants a sleeper. Um, you know, my, my Boston Homer sleeper was uh, Brian Bayo, but I see as we're recording that he's now recording, he's now reporting the uh, the dreaded forearm stiffness. So I will, <laughs> I'll back off of that one. Absolutely, um, yeah. Another one off the top of my head. Um, I mentioned Cleveland's acumen with uh, pitchers earlier. And one guy that popped up in my research this week uh, was Aaron Savali, where I read the, uh, I went back and read the baseball forecaster commentary commentary and it talked about a lot of uh late season skill gains that were influenced by a new pitch mix. And I read the commentary and thought, wow, this is really insightful. Someone really did their homework there. And I scrolled to the bottom of the page and it was me. Um, but I I was this totally guy's forgot. a genius. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why don't you give this guy a job? <laughs> so I, I reacquainted myself with Aaron Savali. Um, he's someone that has uh, now jumped right up on my radar screen this, just this week. If you've been at this racket long enough, you're more or less bound to find some little nugget of information. You think, well, that's really clever and find out that it was you. And and it's qu quite rewarding in its own way. You know, that's why I like looking at the forecaster because every year we have these little blurbs 
the the summaries of past year's research, you know, how to yep. calculate RBIs in season or whatever, and you read through, and you go, oh, yeah, this is actually pretty well thought out. And you look up and it was you, but it was, you know, 30 years ago or whatever when yeah. Ty Cobb was ranging there. It's much better than reading reading a piece of analysis being like, who's the idiot who did this? <laughs> oh, that's oh, awesome. Ha- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, and that's happened too, Ray, believe you me. Uh, same, my friend, same. You mentioned earlier that uh, you're looking in the very late rounds, especially of your draft and holds, at non-closer relievers who might sneak into some saves because of context or because they have good skills in an unsettled situation. Give us an example or two of guys that you like in that regard. You know, one guy who I'm sticking to my guns on I was on earlier in the season, um, in, in the preseason, and then the Phillies have you know, ramped up their bullpen around him. They brought in Craig Kimbrell uh, and you know, made a couple of other additions there to, to fortify that bullpen. But I really still like Sir Anthony Dominguez and think he's got a good chance at you know maybe not being the full time closer, but being the saves leader in that pen. And uh, you know, his eight, he was. I don't want to say he was a trendy pick, but you had to pay, you know, decently for him. I think he was like an early teens round pick, maybe an ADP in the like 180, 200 range earlier. And that's, he's dropped down a few rounds until more like the late teens since the Kimbrel signing. And I'm all about gobbling him up at that discount. That's, uh, you know, that, that to me is a nice uh, 15 or so maybe 20 saves if, uh, if things break, right. Another one I really like that is not expensive. Um, we, when we were talking about the early closers, uh, the, the top tier, um, the one I'm staying away from everywhere is Ryan Presley. I'm just worried about the durability there. You know, he had, you know, seemingly a half dozen fairly short IL stints last year, and I'm worried about his ability to carry the workload. Um, but you know, if you the corollary to that is Rafael Montero was very good as the fill-in guy for him last year, and he's devalued, I think, because people think of that as a stable save situation with Presley at the front. And I will take Montero in round 20 or later all day long and figure I'm I've got a really good chance at a floor of eight to 10 saves just from workload management with Presley. And if anything more serious than workload management happens to Presley, then Montero's upside is a lot higher than eight to 10. So those are, uh, those are two places I'm fishing for saves down in the draft pool. I love both of those guys and not just for the possibility of saves is they're good teams First of all, they're going to be in a lot of close games where there's high leverage work that's going to be available. And even if either of them is not the closer, they figure to get into a lot of close tight games, which opens the uh, opportunity for vulture wins. And I think if you add together the propensity or the likelihood of wins plus saves, these guys all of a sudden start really climbing up the ladder. And I think it's uh, not a bad plan to at least consider what is the wins opportunity for these relievers? Because as we know, um, they're just getting more wins than ever. The amount of wins going to starting pitcher. I think it reversed a little bit in 2022, but for years it's, it's been below 50% starter wins. The relievers are getting 50 plus percent of the wins, which means those kind of relievers have a pathway to hidden value in a way that they used to back when Ron Chandler invented the Lima plan. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a great point. You know, either of these guys, you know, without a, you know, without Taking the you know big C closer label are could be good for six to eight wins, eight to ten saves, a sub three ERA, 
you know, 80 strikeouts. I mean, that's, uh, you know, just off the cuff, that's probably double digit value right there. And that's without, you know, the lightning bolt hitting Ryan Presley or Craig Kimbrell. No, uh, yeah, I, I agree entirely. I think the, the value potential of those kind of second level relievers is climbing steadily. I wanted to ask you, Ray, before we wrap up in the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby system that allows people to try to get their choice of draft slots. Not a lot of, not all leagues have them, but the NFBC does and all the other leagues that I've played in recently have Kentucky Derby. Do you prefer being at the turn in the middle or does it vary year to year depending on how you're looking at basically the first few rounds of the draft? It varies year to year. And this kind of dovetails with the point I was making earlier about Real Muto and that sort of jam I found myself in in the middle of the second round of a draft. Um, I hesitate to say this because I'll get dirty looks from the rest of the NFBC community, but I, I was having a wicked run of Kentucky Derby style luck this year um, where, you know, especially early in draft season, I didn't care what I drafted. So I just left the KDS at a straight one to 15 ranking. And I think the first five, six drafts I was in, I, w- I got a top five pick. <laughs> so, like, I got very familiar with that side of the snake, right? And finally, in the draft that I'm in now with uh, Brent and I are doing a draft in Hold League, um, finally I had to put my foot down and say, look, I got to move the KDS to the back end because I need to see what it's like down there. Because, you know, otherwise I'm going to draft 10 leagues and, and be at the front end and then the main event will come around next month. And sure enough, that'll be when I get stuck at the back end and I won't have any experience there. Right. Um, <laughs> so we, we, t- we turned the KDS down. We got pick number 10 and my, my early read is I really like that side of it more this year um, from a sample size of one at that end <laughs> compared to a sample size of, you know, six or seven back in the top five. So um, I'll probably have to try it again to just to make sure it's not dumb luck, but um, that's, that, that's my current thinking on the topic. One of the good things about, uh, picking the 10th slot or 11th slot, 9th slot as your number one pick in KDS is you're a lot likelier to get it than if you choose like one or two or 14 or 15, because a lot of guys will pick those. And that means to get your pick, you have to be lucky getting your name drawn out of a hat. But if you're, if your choice is 10th, you might blunder it into it, even if you're the seventh guy out of the hat or the eighth guy out of the hat, because nobody wants to be in that position or yep. fewer guys want to be exactly in that right. position. I think this year... I've been mulling this over a lot. And at first my thinking was I went five, four, three, two, one is my first, uh, five slots in my KDS because of the flattening out that I mentioned earlier that, because I want to get one of those really premium guys, knowing that when I pick at the end of the second round, the difference between the first pick in that round and the last pick in that round really narrows. Yeah. Especially the top three for me, you know, Ramirez Acuna, um, and Turner in some order, kind of what we were talking about earlier and keeping options open. You get one of those three guys and you can go and do absolutely anything in round two and round three. And you're not, you're, you're not sitting there waiting for the one complimentary piece to come back and pair with your first round pick the way you would be, even with judge who obviously has, you know, obviously is well worth being picked up there, but you know, has a, you know, a, a, a different profile that, you know, is, at least a little bit restrictive as to what you're going to do in round two, round three. You're probably not going to 
pair him with, uh, you know, a, with a Paul Goldschmidt or yeah, you could, but you know, there are some guys that pair less well with him, but with Acuna Ramirez and Turner, you can do absolutely anything and be very comfortable with where you're coming out. I feel the same way, but I feel comfortable enough with adding judge and Julio Rodriguez to that top five that I can live with any of those guys and be fairly comfortable in knowing that at the, at the other end of the, at the wrong end of the second round, I'm still going to be able to pair relatively effectively and have the security of one of those guys. I, I guess a lot of it depends on how many stolen bases you think judge might get this year. And I don't think anybody expects 60 home runs. I see the projections are usually down around 45. I think that's low. <laughs> Why would a guy just all of a sudden lose 17 home runs in a year, assuming he's not hurt. And then he stole what, 10 or 12 bags last year. If the bag, if the shape of the bags and the rules have helped guys who can steal bases, could he not just get as many bags at least this year? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, he's, you know, we are projecting a fair amount of regression. We're at 48 home runs and, you know, something like 50 less at bats. So some of it is a playing time reduction. And it was actually 16 stolen bases last year. So, you know, 10 this year is you know, that, that we're currently projecting would be, you know, almost a 50% regression, right? So, yeah, there is room for Judge to stay closer to last year's numbers. The big bases may have some impact there. You know, but again, you know, the and the big, the biggest question is the uh, is the playing time, is how healthy will Judge stay? But for sure, he is, you know, he's the most valuable player projected in our data right now, you know, I think virtually tied with Ramirez. And you know, there's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, he's a bad pick at, you know, number one, number two, number three. It's, uh, it's just a bit of a different profile. That was the only point I was making. The one thing I was thinking about Judge as well as Julio Rodriguez and Acuna is I don't know if I want to spend my earliest pick on an outfielder because say what you will about, about, you know, the seeming shortage of outfielders compared to years past, there's still a lot of them and, and there's still a lot of them at pretty much every value level. And I, I think, I might lean towards getting an infielder of some kind in that first five picks if the opportunity presented itself, even if it cost me a, a shot at Aaron Judge, because I think I'd rather have a top flight, a, a Trey Turner at shortstop, and whatever outfielder comes along a few rounds later in in some versus having Aaron Judge and whatever shortstop falls in the, that same round. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely a consideration is, you know, and, and again, you got to make sure, you know, once you you know, outfielders, the one thing about outfielders, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the different shapes and sizes and profiles that come in, but you almost never find a dead spot of outfielders in a draft the way we were talking about with some of those infielders, right? You may not find one that completely fits the profile you're looking for, but there are just so many of them that, you know, you can, you can go there. I, I was using the term safety valve with real Muto a little bit earlier, but like he, you can go to outfield as a safety valve and you can't figure out what to do at virtually any point in the draft. And, you know, you only get five outfield spots. If you spend one right up top, that's only four more times you can, you know, pull that safety lever and, you know, <laughs> and take cover with an outfielder. Right? And as you said, the shape of the outfield playing pool player by player is really much more varied because of the sheer number of players as far as stolen base guy plus average, or do you need power and, and not so much speed? All of those options are more available to you if you're looking at the outfielder pool versus some of the other position pools because there's just fewer guys in them. Uh, Ray, this has been terrific. Before I let you go, what's new this year at BaseballHQ.com? 
oh, we got a lot going on. You know, I think a lot of what we're doing is, you know, dovetails with various parts of this conversation. Uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on our projections and, you know, spending some time in particular with trying to account for these new rules. I had an article about that last week and then another article today about um, some other work we're doing on the projections. Um, Ed Dicaria's research from the baseball forecaster about the future of playing time is up on the site this week. And that's a, a huge one in terms of where I'm directing our tech resources. We're trying to do some work to get those tools embedded into the site, probably just after opening day. Um, you know, so there's a lot to be done. Um, it's a crazy time of year and we're, enjoying the normal off season, right? And the lack of a pandemic and the, you know, interrupting the season, the lack of a lockout interrupting the off season player movement. It's been relatively speaking, it's been a joy. And I think uh, we're teed up to do our best work in the next uh, five or six weeks here. And what's the latest on the first pitch Florida seminar uh, coming up in March? Yeah, that's uh, I will be in Florida two weeks from today, which is super exciting to uh, do another first pitch event in person. Obviously, we've done a couple of Arizonas uh, since the pandemic interruption in 2020, but this will be our first time back to Florida since just before the pandemic hit. Uh, so that's exciting. Uh, we're going to be over in West Palm Beach. We're going to see a Cardinals Nationals game on Saturday afternoon. Uh, we're going to have three labor drafts going on through the course of that weekend. And we're going to be uh, having like the 60 hour version of this conversation that you and I just had, right? You know, going down a lot of these, uh, you know, hitting a lot of these topics and a lot of these rabbit holes and, you know, doing some interactive stuff, some exercises, some, uh, you know, ADP analysis, some player analysis, some rules discussion, roster construction, you know, all of those themes that, uh, you know, we've touched on and other ones we haven't here in the, uh, you know, in, in a extended weekend kind of form. It's going to be a great time. March 3 to 5th, uh, 2023 in West Palm Beach, Florida. And uh, how does one look into more information, maybe signing up? Yeah, we do still have uh, some seats available. So you can just uh, go to baseballhq.com. There's a giant first pitch Florida logo on the right side of the homepage. You can just tap there and register and, um, st and then go immediately run off and book your flight or maybe you're local and don't need to, but it's, uh, it's Florida and in mid March. So, you know, that sells itself. Right. And we're, <laughs> we're, we're taking that foundation and overlaying, you know, ball games, ballparks, and all kinds of, uh, weekend long discussions. So it's going to be a good time. Might not be a bad plan to go to, to book a whole week if you have some holiday time coming. Get down there, you know, do the do the first pitch Florida seminars and the games and stuff like that, and then hang around for a few days and grab some beach time and maybe go to a couple other spring training games. There's lots of them in the area. Goodness knows this is a this is a real opportunity. Yeah, it's a great it's a great base of operation for that. You can go and do all of those things, and you know we're within uh, the hotel is within a fifteen or twenty minute drive of uh four or five teams you know there are two uh at the uh at the new ballpark right in west palm there and then the cardinals of jupiter are right down the street and uh i'm drawing a blank on the other one but the, and then the mets are only 45 minutes away up at st Lucie. so it's uh you know it's not quite as good as arizona where you seemingly have a ballpark every three blocks but it's <laughs> but it's still pretty good <laughs> 
Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. He manages Baseball HQ's projection systems. He's a co-editor of the Baseball Forecaster, the father of twin girls, and holds down a regular full-time day job. So, Ray, believe me when I say this, thanks for the time. <laughs> thanks, PD. Always a pleasure. We'll do this plenty of times during the year. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 17th. It's show number three of the 2023 fantasy baseball season and show number one of the 2023 calendar year. Don't worry about keeping track of it. We'll keep it up as we go along. I'd like to thank Ray Murphy once again for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk with Ray. One of the smartest guys in this business and just a lot of fun to talk to as well. Now, we won't have a show on Tuesday or Friday of next week. My wife and I are going on a Mexican adventure holiday, so we'll be back at it on Friday, March 3rd, and then we'll carry on with two shows a week through opening day and then weekly after that. Always a pleasure to talk with you. I hope you enjoy the first stirrings of spring training. Got some games coming up right away, I think as early as this weekend, somebody told me. So enjoy the baseball. We'll be back to talk with you on Friday, March the 3rd. And in the meantime, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.